is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 19 verses 28 to 40. It's the reading for Palm Sunday in the year C cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be one of the scripture readings for April 10, 2022. This is a well-known text for those who are a part of the life of the church in any way. It describes for us Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus makes his arrival into Jerusalem from the east. And if you're familiar at all with the geography of where Jerusalem is located into the mountains, to approach it from the east means that you're coming from a long climb up from the city of Jericho, which is down in the Jordan River Valley, very near uh, the Dead Sea, which is, as you know, the lowest point on, on the planet. So it's, it's an ascent from uh, that Jordan River Valley all the way up to the top of a mountain, Jerusalem being slightly less than 5,000 feet in the air in elevation. So Jesus makes his arrival from the east, coming up the mountain, this road from Jericho, and as he arrives, he arrives at two small towns on the eastern slope of that mountain that Jerusalem would be on, and two towns called Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage uh, literally means house of unripe figs, and Bethany means house of dates. Now, whenever you see a city uh, in, um, in the Bible that starts with the, the syllable bet, B-E-T, uh, that's the word for house in Hebrew. So think of it uh, as house of, in this case, unripe fig, house of dates. You know another bet city name, Bethlehem, and that means house of bread. Now, both of these places are on the eastern slope of those mountains in which Jerusalem is located. And this particular slope at, that they're located on is the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Uh, oftentimes you see photographs taken of the city of Jerusalem where you can see the, the golden dome of the rock and you can see some of the landmarks of the city. Those pictures are often taken from the top of the Mount of Olives. And so these two villages are on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So it's there that Jesus secures his transportation for his entry into Jerusalem. Now, two disciples secure this transportation and they were given clear instructions uh, by Jesus in verse 30 of exactly what to do in Luke chapter 19. Jesus tells them, go into the village ahead of you, which in this case is Bethphage or Bethany, and there as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So oftentimes people see these instructions of Jesus as being somewhat clairvoyant when in fact, uh, the owner of the animal that the disciples are about to go procure may actually know Jesus. Remember, Jesus spent a good deal of time in Bethany. This is where Mary and Martha live along with their brother Lazarus. There are many stories we know in the Gospels of Jesus spending time in the city of Bethany. So it's it's not unlikely that the, the person that uh, has the animal Jesus is going to use is known to Jesus and is going to offer this animal as a favor favor to him. Now, the animal itself is somewhat interesting. 
And the Gospels differ on the animals. So if you read this same story in Matthew or Mark, it's going to sound a little different from Luke. In some of those versions, it'll say that it's a young donkey. Other times, it'll say it's a young colt. So it's hard to understand in reading the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, to figure out what kind of animal Jesus is actually riding on. And part of the problem here is that when we get bogged down in the actual animal itself, we've, we've lost sight of the meaning of what's going on here. Some of the descriptions about the animal, other than its specific uh, kind, um, kind of get in the way of helping us understand the story. This is an animal that is a young animal, whether it's a donkey or a horse, and it's a young colt that's never been ridden on. And the cultural meaning here is the same. It's a young, unridden animal. And oftentimes these animals that had never been used before were often first used for some form of sacred purpose or processional or some other kind of ritual that would take place. So Jesus securing an animal that's young would mean that the animal's never been ridden. But what's important here is that this kind of animal contrasts itself to strength. If you wanted to communicate strength by the, the kind of animal you were riding, you would ride a horse or a stallion. In this case, Jesus chooses a young animal that's, that's diminutive. It's smaller than a fully grown mature animal. And there's deep meaning in the choice of this particular animal for Jesus to ride into the city. It has to do with Jesus communicating a clear message. So let me set the stage for a moment. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the feast of Passover is about to begin later that week. Passover is the celebration of the Jewish exodus or the, the exodus of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Passover in many ways is the, the Jewish equivalent to their independence day or uh, the you know, for Americans, we would describe it as July the 4th. It's a time in which nationalism and political power are very, very important. And especially since Jerusalem and Judea are occupied by the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, the meaning of this particular day <clears throat> becomes significant in a variety of ways. At the same time, Jesus is coming into the city from the east, from the west, Romans are entering the city to ensure that there's no uprising during this time of heightened Jewish independence. Uh, they're coming from uh, the uh, headquarters of the Roman garrison throughout the region, which is Caesarea Philippi. And it's from there that uh, the uh, Roman garrison comes into Jerusalem. So you kind of get the picture here. The Roman garrison is arriving in the city from the west. Jesus is arriving into the city from the east practically at the same time. The Romans are coming on their stallions and horses. Jesus comes in on one single diminutive beast. Jesus' choice of animal or his transport is peculiar. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the only time we hear of Jesus not walking somewhere. He's riding an animal, and this is the only time we read of Jesus not walking. And the contrast here is rich. It's the contrast to empire in this particular text. Jesus comes on an animal in the way of peace. The Romans are coming into the city on stallions and horses signifying their power. 
The animal is significant as well because oftentimes in the ancient world, if, if two opposing generals were to meet each other in battle and before the battle were to begin, they wanted to have a parlay or a discussion together, they would each ride a colt or a young donkey out into the middle of the battlefield where the two generals or the two military leaders could speak together or have a parlay. And so the riding of the animal is the equivalent in the sense of, you know, waving the white flag, if you will, that, that you come in peace. The mere riding of this particular animal communicates that Jesus is coming in peace and that his advent is something completely different. And that's the key passageway here for us. The advent of the gospel comes in peace and it brings peace. Jesus communicates quite clearly that his coming is not in the trappings of power and empire. His arrival in this manner uh, is an affront to those who would like to see him as a political figure. Jesus is not just making a statement about political power, empire, if you will. He's also making an affirmation about who he is and what he brings. His is a coming that will bring peace. And as such, it has an enduring reign past and above empire. The story turns now to what the disciples do once Jesus has secured this animal and he begins his uh, descent from the Mount of Olives moving now toward Jerusalem itself. When the cult arrives in Jesus's presence, it says that the disciples place their cloaks on it, on the animal itself, and on the path in front of Jesus. Now, there are three versions of this story in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke's version of this story is much more subdued. It's the disciples who do all these things. The disciples put their garments or their cloaks on the animal. The disciples lay their garments out on the path in front of the animal as, as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, not some big giant public crowd that's engaged in this affirmation. It's just the disciples. Now that doesn't mean there wasn't a crowd there. It simply is saying, Luke is simply saying that, that Jesus's disciples act out in this story in a way that we don't hear in Matthew and Mark. Luke says very little about a crowd. It's almost like they're not even there. And the spreading of their garments on the animal and on the path in front of the animal Jesus is writing is an act of submission. It's a symbol of surrendering their very own possessions to the very presence of Jesus. It's also likely that the colt had no saddle or other accessories because it had never been ridden before. But Jesus arrives on the colt at the peak of the Mount of Olives. So remember, he starts in Bethany and Bethpage and rides up to the top of the Mount of Olives from the east. Now he has to descend the Mount of Olives and come through what is called the Kidron Valley. And then he actually enters the city of Jerusalem. It talks about how the whole crowd of his disciples were involved in this. Now, it's not to say that there were just 12 of them there. But there were all those who followed Jesus, all those who had uh, found some sense of connection with his ministry are part of this. That could have been a small crowd, but it's so conspicuous that, that Luke leaves out this big, giant public setting of parade that we see in Matthew and Mark. This is a much more subdued encounter. There's little sense here that this is the same crowd 
that will turn on Jesus by that Friday. In Matthew and Mark, it's pretty clear that the crowd that's shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday is the crowd that's shouting crucify him by Friday. Luke does not offer any of that nuance to the story. This story has a very non-Jewish ethos. Luke has little interest in connecting to messianic expectations. This is a story of Jesus not uh, fulfilling messianic expectations, but this is really a story of Jesus in contrast to empire. What the acclaim that the disciples offer when you see down in verse 38 where they, they shout, blessed is the king. And note the affirmation of who Jesus is. Blessed is the king. It's an insult to King Herod and even Caesar for them to cry out that Jesus is the king. They, they then acclaim, uh, blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a traditional greeting for pilgrims who enter the city of Jerusalem for a feast. And it's also the form of a claim used for the entrance of Jewish kings into the city. And then they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I hope you hear the echo of the nativity story there in Luke's gospel and the birth of Jesus. Remember the, the acclamation of the, the angels to the shepherds, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It echoes some of that language. This is a, a cosmic event of peace. But notice in Luke's story what is not included here. We don't hear the word Hosanna on this particular version of Jesus's entry into the city. It's, it's replete in Matthew and Mark, but not at all in Luke. The, the word Hosanna is a Jewish, uh, uh, a, a Jewish cry, literally meaning God save us. Luke doesn't have any palm branches or leafy branches that the crowd was waving. And those branches were kind of symbols of Jewish nationalism. It'd be the equivalent of them waving a Jewish flag. Luke's Gentile readers would have no understanding of these symbols. And so Luke is using care and refinement in his storytelling to make sure that his Roman and Greek readers would understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. And, and this is a key passageway for us, that the confrontation of empire or power is first and foremost affirmative. And here's what I mean by that. We live today in a time of Christian activism and even a more dangerous and toxic form of Christian nationalism. You see, power in this story is not achieved by inhabiting systems of political governance. It's an affirmative. Jesus' disciples give us a bit of a model here. It's about lifting up the name of Jesus, affirming him, celebrating him. Our tendency so often in the community of faith is to wag the finger in criticism of secular culture. And when we do that, that that's somehow us abiding by the law of diminishing returns. Per, perhaps the challenge here for us isn't to try to seize political power or to wag the finger of criticism at others in a judgmental tone, but maybe it's to embody the peace and presence of Jesus first, to somehow focus on our faith formation and discipleship in a way in which we can embody the affirmation of who Jesus is in a very public way. And when we can do that, we can find pathways to influencing the world around us for the sake of the gospel. Luke 
Luke's version of this story closes with um, a, a short verse in verse 39 about resistance. Luke is the only version of this story to include these closing verses about the Pharisees. It says in verse 39, And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. Only Luke includes this part of the story. They acknowledge Jesus as teacher. The Pharisees do. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So it implies that they may have some sympathy to Jesus or some affinity with his preaching or his message. They tell Jesus to get his disciples to calm down, rebuke your disciples. In other words, the disciples are getting a little carried away in their celebration of Jesus's entrance into the city. So we learn something very important here about the disciples. They were making a scene. And so the motivation of the Pharisees is of question. Why would they want Jesus's disciples to stop doing this if they had some degree of affinity with Jesus? If the Pharisees had some sense of agreement with Jesus in any way by addressing him as teacher, what's their problem? Are they disagreeing with the disciples' affirmation? In other words, do they think the disciples are wrong in what they're saying about Jesus? Are they concerned that this uh, will draw too much attention? In other words, what the disciples are doing is going to draw too much attention and an unwanted attention. Are they worried about being aligned with this king who comes in peace? Do they feel threatened? Jesus simply affirms that what the disciples are doing is true and right. And if they did not do it, the stones would. Jesus, in some sense, is telling the Pharisees that rocks on the ground have more recognition of who he is and courage than the Pharisees do. This is the final key passageway for us, and it's an important one, even though it's based on these two short verses. The gospel of peace is a subversion, yet it's a public subversion. You see the way here of Jesus is public. It's noticed. It's unhidden. And the message of peace is a subversion to the message of empire and power and control. Its power in the face of resistance is undeniable. It means for us that our witness of and with Christ is public. It's when it happens at work, when it happens at school, when it happens at home. When we affirm Christ, when we witness Christ, it is public and unhidden. But it's not an assertion of power and control. It's an affirmation that Jesus is Lord, the only Lord. And, and this Palm Sunday, uh, which is ironically titled for Luke's version of the story, since there are no palms in it, it's a day for us to locate ourselves in the story. So as we hear the reading of Jesus' entrance into the city, we have an opportunity to locate ourselves in the story. We could locate ourselves, believe it or not, as the, the donkey or the cult. Are we a vessel of peace that brings Jesus' presence in the world? Or perhaps we're more like the disciples. Are we those who celebrate? and affirm Jesus publicly and submit ourselves only to him? Or are we at times detractors? Are we those who resist Jesus 
so that we save face with others and curry favor with people? These are all good questions. And the coming of Jesus on this day, what we call Palm Sunday, invites us to consider all of them. It's a question that the people of Jerusalem will weigh over the next several days of Jesus's coming into the city. And their conclusion of Jesus's message and presence is clear. Crucify him. And Jesus's response is not one of power, not one of empire, not one of leveraging. Jesus's response is to rise from the dead three days later. Thanks be to God. That's it for this week. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.